this morning when I was out walking as the sun was coming up, where we live in Castle Rock, which is the meadows, I was walking just north of our home. And north of our home is a flight path where planes come in over the Rockies. They're heading, they're heading east, circling around, and they're going to ultimately land at Denver International Airport. And so I looked up and saw a number of those planes as I was walking this morning. And I thought back to the time when I was doing more air travel than I've been doing recently as a result of COVID. In fact, during COVID, I haven't done any air travel. And all of you who have flown, you know the routine. You go to the airport, you check in. If you have any bags to check, you check those bags. You get your boarding pass, or you may have printed that out in advance. And then you, you go to your gate where you sit and wait till it's time to start boarding. And uh, when it's time to start boarding, you stand up and you get in line and you show your boarding pass or you scan your iPhone that has a digital copy of your boarding pass. And then you walk down the walkway where you stand in line and then you begin to enter the plane where you're greeted by a steward or stewardess. Isn't that right? And then you turn to the right normally and you find your seat. And, you know, I've thought to myself, as that plane begins to taxi down the runway and increase its speed, I think to myself, you know what? I'm sitting in a plane assembled by people I don't know a thing about. And in a different part of the country, most likely than Denver, this plane was assembled by people I don't know anything about. And then as that plane begins to lift off into, off into the air, I begin to think, you know, this plane is being piloted by people I've never met, and I don't know. And then as that plane begins to turn and fly on the route that it's, it's designed to fly on, um, I think to myself, that plane is being guided by people in an air traffic control tower that I've never seen and don't know anything about. And yet, isn't it amazing that we as individuals are so quick to be willing to trust ourselves to fly on an airplane and is guided by people or assembled by people we've never met and don't know anything about. We trust them, and yet we find it so hard to trust God, who, granted, we've never seen. And that's really what I want to focus on a bit here this morning. Take your Bibles to turn and turn to 2 Kings 2 Kings chapter 18, because we're going to look at a king who, in this story, had learned to trust God and put his faith in God. Now, this, this talk is going to be quite uh, text-focused. I'm going to be reading a lot of text, but there's valuable lessons, I believe, that we can learn from this story in regards to Hezekiah. Hezekiah the son of Ahaz. Lessons we can learn from Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. So 2 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to start looking at the verse, first three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. And it says this, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old, that's fairly young, 
although not as young as his father, Ahaz's father started reigning at age 20, and he reigned for, reigned for 16 years. But here we see Hezekiah, 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He reigned longer than his father. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And verse 3 says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. You know, if you've ever visited with people at times, and they're talking about their experience, and they're talking about themselves, they may say, you know, I do struggle with a temper, but, you know, I inherited that from my father, and they kind of laugh about it. That's just the way I am. Or, uh, you know, I struggle with managing my finances, but, you know, I grew up in a home where we were never taught how to do that, so, and they just kind of laugh it off. And, you know, if anyone could say that my father was a certain way, Ahaz was a certain way, therefore, I'm just going to live my life like him. I've inherited all those tendencies, and therefore, I'm going to be like my father, who, by the way, was a very, very, very wicked king. Hezekiah could have said that about his father Ahaz, and he could have chose to live his life the way that his father did, but for some reason, he chose to go a different way. He chose to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He didn't choose to do what was convenient. He didn't choose to do what was comfortable. He didn't choose to do what was politically correct. He didn't choose to do what was easy. He didn't choose to do what was effortless. He chose to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And I think to myself, after I read that third verse, I think, well, what is the right thing that Hezekiah did? Well, we have a great answer. And that answer is found in verse 4. It says, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and called it Nehushtan. Basically, what Hezekiah did is he removed the things that didn't belong in a God-fearing nation, Judah. Isn't that right? He removed the things that didn't belong. I remember years ago when we were living in Indianapolis, when we were living north of town, I was working on the north side of Indianapolis. And for lunch that day, I hadn't brought a lunch, and so I ran across the road to the grocery store where they had a nice salad bar. And I got a salad, and I, I sat down at a table, and there on the table, the person who was there evidently before me had left an Indianapolis Star newspaper. And so as I was eating my salad, I was just kind of glancing through the newspaper, kind of seeing what the headlines were. And there buried in that newspaper was a story about some people who had been in a canoe canoeing down the White River, which is a river that flows through a lot of Indiana. They were canoeing down the White River, and as they looked over on the shoreline, they couldn't believe what they saw. You know what they saw in central Indiana on the shoreline? They saw a 19-foot-long python laying there on the shoreline, the White River in central Indiana. Now, in my mind, a python that's 19 feet long does not belong out in the wild in central Indiana. Now, I do need to add something to this. They said that as they looked at that more and began to explore that more, they discovered the python was dead. 
that hadn't survived the elements, okay? But still, my point is, is that a 19-foot-long python snake does not belong in central Indiana. And Hezekiah realized that the idols that his father had set up didn't belong in a God-fearing nation. Let me read a quote from Prophets and Kings. It says this, Hezekiah came to the throne determined to do all in his power to save Judah from the fate that was overtaking the northern kingdom. And then it says this, no sooner had he ascended the throne than he began to plan and to execute. In other words, his, his goal was to remove the things that didn't belong in that nation. You know, a solar eclipse is very rare. It doesn't happen every, a total solar eclipse is very rare. It doesn't happen every 10 years. Every, I forgot, I read, I don't know if it's a few hundred years, but a solar eclipse where the moon passes between the sun and the earth and causes the light from the sun virtually to disappear is very, very rare. And as I think about a solar eclipse blocking the sunlight from shining on planet earth, I think about the nation of Judah. Those idols that Ahaz had set up, the, the idol worship that he had encouraged and promoted and emphasized had blocked the people's ability to see the beauty of God. Isn't that right? They couldn't see the beauty that God wanted to give them as a nation and the success that God wanted to give them as a nation. Well, here's another question I have. Hezekiah is a young king, 25, 26, 27. He's moving forward to remove things that didn't belong. Let me ask you a question. Do you like change? Do most human beings like change and embrace it? No. The older we get, the less we like change. Isn't that right? We're a little reticent. We're a little reticent. We don't like change. And so I think to myself, what gave Hezekiah the ability to bring about change in a nation that was stuck in the way they were doing things and probably felt secure in the way they were doing things? What was it that enabled him to bring about change? Well, let's look at verses 5 and 6 because that's where our answer is. Verses 5 and 6, 2 Kings chapter 18. This is what enabled, I believe, Hezekiah to bring about change. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. It says that he held fast. And when I think of holding fast, I think of my sister, and I think of her husband. Let me give you an illustration. Doug, her husband, who's a great brother-in-law, he's about six foot one, six foot two, big boned and strong. He grew up in a contractor's home, and Doug is also a contractor. And when he grew up in that home in Bering Springs, Michigan, because that's where they live is Bering Springs, Michigan, um, his parents had a boat, and they would go down to Lake Chapin when they had free time, and Doug grew up knowing how to water ski. When he married my sister, after they became established, a few years went by, 
um, they bought their own boat, the ski boat. And so, of course, they would, Doug would continue to ski. And Ron and I, a few times when we visited, we would go out on the boat with them. And Doug is an amazing water skier. He's a water skier that skis on one ski. And when he cuts back and forth, his shoulder is almost touching the water. He's almost, almost perfectly parallel with the water. He's an amazing water skier. And when Doug gets bored with water skiing on one ski, he will start water skiing on his bare feet. It's an amazing water skier. Um, but there's a secret to Doug's success. And you know what the secret to Doug's success is? The secret to Doug's success is that he holds fast to that rope. Isn't that right? Because, see, Doug realizes that except for the power of that boat and him holding fast to that rope, he has no ability, no power to do the amazing things that he's doing. He holds fast to the rope. And that was the secret of Hezekiah's success. He held fast to God, and that's how he had the ability to bring about change in a nation that was stuck in its way of doing things. Well, now, you want to stay here in 2 Kings, but maybe keep your finger there. We're going to flip over now to 2 Chronicles, where this story kind of has parallel passages. Second Chronicles chapter 32, uh, verses 1 through 8. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. And actually, if you look at the very end of the last verse of the prior chapter, uh, chapter 32 of Second Chronicles, um, chapter 31 of Second Chronicles, the very last verse basically says that Judah was prospering. This was, they were prospering as a result of these changes. But now comes the external threat. Now comes the external threat. And we're going to read a few verses here in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. And this is what it says. After these deeds of faithfulness, the faithful deeds of Hezekiah and the people, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. Verse 2 now says this. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Verse 4, thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Verse 5. And he strengthened himself, built up the wall that was broken, raised, up, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall, also, another wall outside. Also he repaired the Milo and the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. And then let me just read just three more verses. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. And finally, verse 8, With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. The people 
did their part in preparation for what the Assyrians were trying to do for them. You know, I remember years ago when uh, our family moved from Spokane, Washington, Madison, Wisconsin. And we lived in Madison from when I was age seven to age 14. And during about the first three years we were there, my parents sent me in the summertime up to summer camp, Camp Wadoon. And I remember going up there to summer camp. And the first year, my parents encouraged me to get my beginner swimming honor. Because at that stage, um, they, they taught honors at camp. And so we worked on our honors. And so my parents encouraged me to get my beginner swimming honor because I didn't know how to swim and didn't even like the idea of swimming. And so um, I went there that week and we started working on those honors. And the first day we went down there to the lake and we went out on the dock and our teacher encouraged us to get into the water. And so everyone got in the water except for myself. And she said, hey, George, get in the water. I said, no, I think I'll just stand here on the dock. Because northern Wisconsin in the spring, that water is very, very, very cold. And so I didn't have an interest in getting in the water. She tried to encourage me again. I said, no, I think I'll just stand here. And so we went through that first day. Well, then the next day, we, you know, we went down there, went out on the dock. And again, she uh, encouraged us to get in the water. And so everyone got in the water except myself. I just stood there. And so she said, George, get in the water. I said, no, I think I'll just stay here. Well, as the whole week went by, I pretty much did the same thing. I never got in the water. Now, let me ask you a question. Was I physically able to get in the water? Yeah, because where she was having to step down, that water was only about a foot and a half deep. And was I physically able to do what she asked us to do. She was telling us how to move our arms. Could I do that? Yeah, I could. Um, but I didn't do what I could have done. Needless to say, by the end of the week, when the students got their little beginner swimming honors, I didn't receive one. Not that I wasn't capable. I just chose not to do what I could physically do. I guess the point I want to make here is that these people, Hezekiah and the people, did what they could do. They could stop up the water. They could build up the wall. They could enhance their weapons. Hezekiah could put commanders in place. He could organize. Um, and Hezekiah could encourage the people. Hezekiah and the people did what they could do to prepare for the onslaught of the Assyrians. Another quick quotation here from Prophets and Kings. It says this, Nothing had been left undone that could be done in preparation for a siege. The king of Judah had determined to do his part in preparing to resist the enemy. Now, now if you don't remember anything else from this quote, remember this one sentence. This is a powerful sentence. It says, Nothing more quickly inspires faith than the exercise of faith. Nothing more quickly inspires faith than the exercise of faith. Isn't that a great thought? Nothing more quickly inspires faith than the ex exercise of faith. And then it goes on to say, the king of Judah had prepared for the coming storm 
and now confident that the prophecy against the Assyrians would be fulfilled, he stayed his soul upon God. You see, Hezekiah was believing Isaiah 14, where it talked about that the Assyrians would be destroyed in the land. Well, now let's go back to 2 Kings again, chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 28 through 33. And this is uh, what it says. Then the Rabshakeh. Now, the Rabshakeh was like one of the key leaders for Assyria. Okay? Not, not the king, but he was one of the primary leaders. So it says, Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Verse 29. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to de deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will, will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So basically, the Rabshakeh said, hey, you people up on the wall, I'm, I'm talking to you in Hebrew. You can understand this. Don't listen to what your king's saying. Don't listen that there's going to be deliverance from your God. That's not going to happen. Verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. Verse 32. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Basically, we have someone who is trying to bully the people of Jerusalem and offer them an out. And I thought to myself, how, how often, you know, does Satan come along in my life? He says, you know, I, I don't know, you know, that road that, that God's kind of, you know, suggesting that you walk on, it'd be a lot easier to go this way. You know what I'm saying? That's how Satan works. He's a bully and he tries to intimidate us. And he tries to put fear in our hearts. And here you can see the Assyrians trying to be a threat to the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and offer them an easy way out. I came across this excerpt from uh, something that was written that says, You say God says. And listen to what this says. It says this. It says, You say it's impossible. God says in Luke 18, 27, all things are possible. You say, nobody really loves me. God says in John 3, 16, I love you. You say, I can't go on. God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient. You say, I can't do it. God says in Philippians, you can do all things. You say, I can't forgive myself. God says in 1 John, I forgive you. You say, I am afraid. God says in 2 Timothy, I have not given you the spirit of fear, 
And finally, you say, I feel all alone. And God says in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never leave you or forsake you. Well, let's look at the very end of this story. The last three verses. The last three verses. And this is what it says. 35 through 37. It says this. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Verse 36. So Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Verse 37, now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. You know, that's an amazing climax to an interesting story um, because it didn't say that 1,850 people died. It says 185,000 people died. Now, if you study military history, um, I don't think there's too many wars where in one battle that many people died. I mean, you think of the Civil War, the Gettysburg Battle, there were 45,000 people that died. Um, here, 185,000 Assyrians were killed, and it was one person who did that. It's an amazing climax to a story. And let me ask you a question. In the end, even though the people prepared, and I, I didn't read the section where Hezekiah went into the temple and prayed, but even though the people prepared, in the end, who fought the battle? In the end, God fought the battle. Isn't that right? In the end, God fought the battle. So in summary, what are some of the lessons we can learn from Hezekiah? First of all, he did the right thing by removing the things that were blocking the people's vision of the beauty of God. And how did he do that? Well, he did that by holding fast to God and trusting in him. And then what did the people do and what did Hezekiah do? They did their part. Isn't that right? They did what they could do, what they were physically capable of doing. And then they believed in the promises of God that Isaiah said, that the Assyrians would be destroyed in the land. They put their trust in the promise of God through Isaiah the prophet. Hezekiah, I didn't talk about this, but he did go into the temple and he prayed. And yet in the end, God fought the battle. Well, even though there's three or four or five lessons there, there's one primary thought I want to leave us with. One primary lesson. Because the foundation that underlies all these different things that I mentioned, doing the right thing and holding fast and doing their part and believing the promises of God and praying in the temple, the underlying idea or concept or spiritual thought that underlies all that is that Hezekiah had faith and trust in God. Isn't that right? Hezekiah had faith and trust in God.
you know, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. It's amazing when you go through the Bible how faith is continue, continually uh, uh, maybe focused on or implied or is talked about throughout. I mean, faith is really critical for all of our salvation. So I guess I just want to end uh, this afternoon with this idea of the importance of faith and that Hezekiah, because he trusted in God and was faithful, that God was able ultimately to deliver the people of Judah. And he can do the same thing in each of our lives, each and every day.